Hello and welcome to Light Body Healing, and I'm your host, Dr. Lara May. Today, I have with me Dr. Elizabeth Collins, who was a full-time emergency medical technician prior to obtaining her master's degree from the Finger Lake School of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine in Seneca Falls, New York. She is the founder and director of the East West Company in Providence, Rhode Island. She is a licensed acupuncturist since 2014. And I am super happy to have her here. We are going to talk all about burnout recovery. So this should be especially um, poignant for the holiday season as well. So welcome, welcome, Dr. Collins. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lara. It's really nice to be here. So let's get started by just uh, having you tell us like your story and how you came to be the uh, burnout recovery expert. Yeah. So, um, it's funny, a colleague of mine, uh, runs a podcast and she's a burnout recovery coach that I worked with during my burnout. And she has people start with their burnout story on her podcast. And it makes you think about your own. And when I was thinking about mine, I was like, where would my burnout story start? And it was like, well, I was born in 1982 and it started shortly after that. Um, I was a kid of what I refer to as big T trauma. So we have big T trauma and little T trauma. And I know that that's been mentioned on your podcast before. So I'm sure people are familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Um, my biological mother passed away when I was 13 months old. So that really kind of set me up for a lifetime of not understanding boundaries and coping mechanisms. Um, when you have trauma before the age of six, whether it's abuse or neglect or the loss of a parent or you know a separation where you don't have a parent or you don't have a particularly functional parent that can really sort of screw with the way your brain thinks about relationships and how you approach the world. And so for me, what that ended up uh, creating was an atmosphere of perfectionism, uh, an atmosphere of not enoughness, which isn't something that was like drilled into me by my parents. When I say my parents, my dad and my mom, my stepmom. Um, but they were really supportive of the things that I loved like dance and music. And so this was really something that was rooted heavily in my trauma that I didn't start to process until I was in my late teens and early twenties. I started doing that in therapy. And at that point I started to understand it, but I didn't still feel like I had decent coping mechanisms. My music and my dance were very useful, but outside of things like that, you know, um, kids with that type of trauma, their threshold for their stress response tends to be a little bit lower. So I got very stressed out very easily. I developed anxiety. I developed depression and I worked with those things as much as I could throughout my twenties and early thirties. And when I started my business in 2014, I did that in a way that was not in alignment with my values, my wants, my needs. I was doing it in a way that, You were told you have this degree. This is how you go out and start a successful business. It was sort of, you know, just the template of you go out into the world and you introduce yourself and patients just flock to you because there are more people in the United States than there are acupuncturists who have room for them. So you'll have no shortage of getting patients. And that's just kind of not how the world works. Mm -hmm. And when you're building a business based on someone else's values and someone else's ideals and what they think is right, that's not in alignment. So I struggled probably a lot more than I would have if I had crafted a business around what's best for me as an individual, not me, the acupuncturist in the world of acupuncturists. Mm -hmm. And so I got my business rolling and it was doing well after five years, it was, you know, successful. 
And I contract, uh, I contracted at the time with several different outside organizations who would refer patients in. So they were very steady referral sources. And one of those organizations for a period of time just kind of stopped referring wholesale to outside providers. So it wasn't something that was individual or specific to me, but about half of my patient base was resultant from that referral base. And so it cut my, my patient base in half almost overnight. It gutted my practice. And I freaked out. I was like, I'm going to have to close my practice. I'm going to have to move back in with my parents. I don't know how I'm going to feed my four cats. Um, you know, mm-hmm. all of the, the stressors that come along with that. And so I had reached out to a colleague at that point that was in 2019. Um, the one that I spoke of before who does burnout recovery coaching herself she had moved to places where nobody knew her and started two very successful acupuncture practices. And I thought, well, she can do it. So she's got some good information. So I reached out to her looking to get assistance with rebuilding my acupuncture practice. And in the process of talking to her, she said, you know how I did that? I I burnt out really badly twice. And I can see that that's kind of what you've done too. So if you're up for it, I'd like to help you with your burnout recovery, because I think by addressing that, we're going to get you to a point where your practice will sort of naturally bounce back. And it did, it it started filling in within weeks. It created space for, you know, new patients to come in and, and for me to actually have the energy to run a business without feeling completely drained at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And so I've spent the last two years in the process of my own recovery learning what that looks like and learning what that means for me and integrating my own additional trainings in functional medicine and hypnosis, and even like using tarot cards um, in certain instances to create a comprehensive way of approaching burnout recovery that addresses the body, the mind, and the spirit. Awesome. That's, I love that, that evolution and that self-recognition. Um, so for those of us out there that might be a little in denial, or maybe just in this, uh, a habit cycle of, um, this is just quote, how we function. How would one really recognize that they're in burnout? Like you had that colleague and friend that was like, Hey, this might be going on. And she recognized, you know, she saw part of herself in you. So yeah. Uh, yeah. tell us how, like, we might be like, have an aha moment here today with that. <laughs> it's interesting because a lot of times when I tell people I'm a burnout coach, they're like, ah, oh, you know, I think I might be burnt out. And if you're at the point of saying, I think I might be, you are probably well within mm-hmm. the realm of burnout and not realizing it because it is a relatively new kind of buzzword within the last couple of years. It was recognized um, in the medical community first that doctors and nurses and people in biomedicine struggle with it, but it hasn't been applied more broadly to entrepreneurs, to stay-at-home parents, to you know the, the breadth of things that can cause burnout. It's not just a job. Mm-hmm. So one of the places that I really like to look is resentment. So if mm-hmm. you are really frustrated, if you're waking up and you're like, I have to do this thing. Or every time an email comes in from a certain person and you feel like you have to answer it right away. And you're just like, Oh, that the feelings of resentment that come up, Mm -hmm. that's a good indication that there's a place where a boundary should be that there isn't right now. And so if you're feeling very easily frustrated, if you're feeling very easily triggered by like minor stresses, and you can even look at a situation and be like, that shouldn't be stressing me out or pissing me off as much as it is that's a good indication that you're probably not functioning on 
all cylinders Mm -hmm. and that your energy is going places where it shouldn't be, where you should be conserving that or putting it more towards yourself than something else. So resentment is a really good place to start for that. If you don't know where to look. Mm -hmm. I like that. That's a really good clue. What else? Like what, um, maybe what are some more signs and symptoms, like maybe both in our physical body. And cause I like, you know, um, that resentment is sort of like how we interact with people, but mm-hmm. are there other like physical, like in the body, like maybe we should do like the mind body. So like, let's start with the body and then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I usually look for with my patients is specifically that it's not necessarily catastrophic stuff but it's stuff that makes you feel like you are not living optimally. So if you have brain fog, if you can't go to the grocery store to pick up three things without making a list, if you have kind of like eh, joint pain, like you've got a little bit of back pain that again, doesn't necessarily stop you from doing anything, but is just sort of constant throughout the day. If you carry your tension in your shoulders, if you can't relax your jaw, if you're having digestive issues, that mean you're not processing your food great, but it's also like, you're still processing it, you know, like you're moving your bowels every day or every couple of days, but it doesn't feel complete or you eat stuff. And even if it's healthy food, like Brussels sprouts or broccoli, or, you know, grass fed meat or something like that. If there's something that's setting off your digestive system, a lot of times what I look for, for burnout is that these are not catastrophic things that prevent people from living their lives, but they are noticeable enough that make you feel like you're not living optimally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think in, in case, um, my wonderful audience isn't picking up on it yet, like this is a very integral connection between the mind and the body. Mm-hmm. So just like you mentioned the digestive issues. So, you know, maybe someone out there has a diagnosis or a history of IBS or chronic mm-hmm. constipation. Mm-hmm. And then, and now they're starting to develop some of these other things, even if they feel like it's quote unquote managed, you know, I think it's worth pointing out, you know, and to you and I, it might be obvious, but to the, the worldwide audience out there that is maybe just opening their eyes and their awareness to this is that it's, it's almost like a chicken and an egg conversation. Did we develop the IBS or the inflammation, chronic inflammation, even autoimmune, I would say would be like an Mm -hmm. escalation point. Probably you would agree. Yeah. Um, or was it the stress that caused you know? And so what do you think? Is it, can you say the one or the other, or is it person specific? It's usually person specific and past a certain point, they both need to be dealt with. So I can balance your gut microbiome. We can do functional medicine testing, but if you're not addressing the underlying stress associated with it, it's going to continue to come back. You can address your stress, but if your gut microbiome is out of balance, no amount of meditation is going to make you digest your food better. And so they are incredibly intertwined. And I think the thing with burnout, people who are burnt out, they've been in a state of chronic stress for such a long time and their body has not been able to complete the stress cycle regularly enough to discharge that. And when you have high levels of stress hormones in your system for an extended period of time, it tells your body to shift the way it functions. 
Mm-hmm. So when you are in a state of chronic stress, that tends to be that sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight, flight, freeze, fawn response. When that happens, your parasympathetic nervous system, which is what we usually refer to as the rest and digest. I like to refer to them as the gas and the brakes alternately. Mm-hmm. The brakes aren't functioning and the gas is on hundred mm-hmm. percent. So that rest and digest that energy that would normally go to your digestive system, to your sleep, to all of those sort of restorative things that can't actually function because your body chemically is not allowing it to. So when we have those stress levels that are so elevated for such a long time, you're going to see problems with sleep. You're going to see problems with your gut because it's not allowed to function the way that it's supposed to in that cyclical fashion of I get stressed out, I shake it off, I go back to normal. You know, if you Mm -hmm. see a, a fox chasing a bunny and the bunny gets away, the bunny sort of shakes all over and that's a way of discharging the stress. And then it goes back to grazing and feeding and, you know, making other bunnies and things like that. So when we don't engage in that type of stress relief, essentially completing that stress cycle and shaking Mm -hmm. it off, Mm -hmm. then the system gets sort of not permanently rewired, but chronically rewired. Right. And again, if it's not addressed and you, I mean, that's when it does become almost, I mean, it could be permanent and even lethal in some, you know, some way, shapes and forms, heart attacks, strokes, all of these things that are, can be catastrophic in the Western medicine realm. Mm -hmm. They can't most often always stem from some sort of chronic stress that has not been addressed appropriately. We'll say that it might've been highlighted, let's say, but not really addressed and, and, um, worked with absolutely treated what, you know, whatever word you want to assign to it. Um, so, what does a completed stress cycle look like? You sort of touched on it, but can we dive deeper into that? And maybe let's have some examples, uh, that people might be able to like, be like, Oh, okay. So these are things that I can do to quote unquote, blow it off or, you know, um, sort of put myself back at square one, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Yeah. So two things that I really like are breathing and shaking, literally kind of like the bunny example. Um, So in Chinese medicine, we have something called chi shaking. If you go on YouTube, you can find this. There's um, a particular YouTube video that I'm happy to send you to put in the show notes that gives people access to it. Mm -hmm. And it's, you can do it with music. You can do it really intensely. I like to do that because I'm an auditory person. So I'll put on a song I really like, and I'll just shake really, really hard. I have to do it like in a closed door because it'll like scare my cats and freak out my neighbors. (laughs) But um, it literally allows your body to physically discharge the stress that you're carrying. Okay. And that makes a huge difference. That's why exercise can be so useful for people and why it can be so challenging for people who are burnt out because rigorous exercise is not always the best thing for people in that circumstance. And I can mm-hmm. get to that in a minute, mm-hmm. but chi shaking yin yoga, even a yoga nidra where, which is like a yogic sleep, It's a progressive way of relaxing um, certain aspects of the body. So it's usually somebody talking you through relaxing Mm -hmm. in a very specific um, fashion that can be really useful for reducing physical stress. And then breathing can be really useful as well. Mm -hmm. And I know everybody's like, oh, just take a deep breath. Um, (laughs) It's not always that easy. Just one. (laughs) Just Just one. one. You'll be fine. (laughs) It's fine. Everything's fine. It's like a dog sitting in a room full of fire and flames. Everything's fine. It's fine. 
one of the things that I like to do, I'm, I'm not sponsoring Apple in any way, shape or form, but I do have an Apple watch and it has a breathe app on it. And mm -hmm. I set it to go off four times a day for one minute. And that was how I started retraining my parasympathetic nervous system to come online because I can do a minute of deep breathing four times a day. That's not a problem. Mm -hmm. And I actually just recorded a meditation that does that one minute breathing sequence. And I have people progressively relax the muscles around their eyes, the jaw muscles, the shoulders, and the abdomen, because those are places that we tend to carry tension shoulders we think of, but the eyes, the jaw and the abdomen, we don't usually. Mm -hmm. And so even just doing that a few times a day can start to bring your parasympathetic nervous system back online. And by training yourself to do that at times when you're calm, when you become stressed out, it becomes an automatic thing that you go to, because that was one of the issues that I had in the throes of burnout was I would get really stressed out. And then I would be in such a state of anxiety or panic or frustration that I couldn't access the tools that would help me. Mm -hmm. So as I started to train myself when I was calm, they became things that I naturally went to when I started to become stressed. Mm, yes. I like that. Um, and so I just want to add a couple of things to that too, with the yoga Nidra, there is a method, uh, where the, the, um, I guess the, the facilitator, <laughs> I'm like, what, who's that person that guides you through it? The facilitator will instruct you to, to tighten an area and then also release it. So I think that can also be really helpful for people. Um, that's not a full on shaking, but it does mm -hmm. allow you to really bring in everything to it and then release with a big, usually a big deep exhale too. And then also with Kundalini yoga, you know, Kundalini yoga is fantastic for resetting the nervous system. And one of the things that is incorporated into a practice is some sort of shaking, whether it's with a song and you're standing and you're like shaking all your limbs and your head and, and whatever for, you know, uh, for one to three minutes, or mm -hmm. it can even be on the ground. And so there's also different ways. So from this perspective, let's go in to talk about why exercise is fantastic, but what would be some therapeutic exercise in an instance like this versus something where you're probably just, um, doing more harm than good. Yeah. So people who are burnt out tend to not have the necessary energy reserves to recover from something like exercise. And so it may feel really good when you're doing it. And then you'll be completely wiped out after like you'll need a nap or you can do a really vigorous vinyasa flow class, yoga class, but then you'll have some instability in your knees and you won't be able to do another one. And so this is kind of the thing that tends to frustrate people, especially who are very attached to physical activity as a stress outlet as their burnout progresses and their body becomes less tolerant of that type of activity, it can become really, really frustrating if that's your primary source of um, energetic outlet and stress relief. So that's usually why through the process of burnout recovery, I try and get people to cultivate a few different styles so that if you end up, you know, injuring a knee or a shoulder or something like that, and you have to genuinely rest it, you have other alternatives. Wow. Um, as far as physical activity goes, something like yin yoga can be really useful because it causes you to inhabit your body in a very intentional and focused way. You get a really good stretch off of it. And again, it really brings that parasympathetic nervous system online. Qigong and Tai Chi, same thing. They're very low impact. They're very accessible. You can do them just about anywhere and it's movement without being stressful. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. And, and also really good for detoxing the body allow, you know, increasing that blood flow, increasing the oxygenation to the tissues, helping your liver get rid of toxins. And, um, and even if you do like a yin yoga in a hot room, if you get a little bit of a sweat on at the same time, then a fantastic detox mechanism. So I think there's also, I was just talking about this um, with my sister who is a, um, physical therapy assistant, massage therapist also. And she was, we were talking about ways to, like you said, for those that are really attached to that exercise because they like it and that's fantastic. But even myself, I've been guilty of this healing through adrenal fatigue. It was really hard for me to accept that hit training was not doing me any favors. <laughs> and yeah, and so I think us, um, also assigning these other benefits to these, uh, more restorative practices. So like educating people that the yin is actually helping you detox, which is helping you with your, you know, your liver function, your adrenal, you know, whatever it is that you're, you're healing through, um, I think is really important and can help people open their eyes and shift the perspective that just because you're not slamming your body through, you know, 30 seconds of work, 10 seconds of rest, go, go, go <laughs> with weights on top of that, you know, and then wondering why you're exhausted and need a nap three hours later. <laughs> yeah. And in, it, it actually really functions nicely with Chinese medicine, which is why I love the background that I have in the combination of like biomedicine and functional medicine with Chinese medicine is in Chinese medicine, yang is that sort of outward, like bright, active movement kind of oriented activity. Yin is usually substance. And so like when we describe, you know, the yin and yang and the, the chi of the, the cardiovascular system, the yin is the substance. It's your heart. It's your vessels. It's your blood. The yang is the activity of that. It's the pumping of the heart. It's the integrity of the vessels to hold the blood. It's the movement of the blood through the vessels. So you need a balance of both of those. So if you want to have that sort of yang activity, you need to build the substance in to be able to create that. It needs to come from somewhere. And people who are chronically stressed, people who are burnt out, people who have that sort of long-term stretch of just not being able to you know, work out to the level that they want, or they do, and then they need to crash. It's because you don't have that underlying substance. And so it can be really frustrating for people. Um, I just had a conversation with a client a couple of weeks ago. Um, Cause he was like, this is what I do. Like I work out. And every time I go to work out, it sets me back. I was like, I know you hate me right now and that's okay, <laughs> but you have to get more in touch with your body and you have to move more slowly. You can move I'm not telling you to sit on the couch and be a couch potato, but you have to move with intentionality mm -hmm. and eventually we'll be able to get you back to the point. I think where you can do that higher intensity stuff that makes you feel really good. But if you keep trying to do that without doing the foundational work, you're only going to continue to hurt yourself. Right. And, and this is also where I think different, uh, practices of yoga can be so telling for us because if you as the practitioner are in the middle of, um, a seated meditation or some sort of pranayama X, which is breathing for those of you that aren't, um, uh, yogi fanatics out there. <laughs> um, and, but you notice yourself going into fight or flight, you notice yourself feeling angry and frustrated. Those are great signs that what is coming up needs to come out. 
And this, again, like just being, giving yourself that space to be the observer instead of being in our normal lives triggered, but having to keep moving on so to speak, and not really addressing it. And, and so the yoga, whether it's yin, you know, there are some postures that are so deep that you will feel emotions come up. Like you'll, you'll feel pissed (laughs) or, you know, frustrated or, and you're like, but I'm not even, I'm laying here in pigeon pose. Like what is going on? (laughs) I have, I swear to God, I've gone through the five stages of grief in yin yoga before. And I love it. I, after, you know, 20 on off years of therapy, I'm the person who like likes to dig in and do the internal dirty work. Like I'm a huge fan of that right now. And I forget that not everybody is, Right. Um, (laughs) but that's one of the things that I love so much about particular styles of yoga that either incorporate shaking like Kundalini to actually kind of complete that stress cycle in that way, or something like yin or even Hatha. Hatha is a more active form of yoga, but you do tend to hold the postures longer, excuse me. And when you do that, it gives you an opportunity. It's, it's a much more somatic experience mm-hmm. um, as opposed to doing like a hit class or even like a really fast vinyasa flow class is you have the opportunity to sink into a section of your body and say, what am I feeling both physically and emotionally? And I've, I've laid in Shavasana, which is the, the on your back corpse pose for people that it's called corpse pose, but it's basically just on your back with your palms up, mm-hmm. super relaxed and cried. The whole yeah. time, yeah, I'm not actively doing anything, but something in the process of going through yin and going through these postures and sinking into the grief that I hold in my hip or the frustration that I'm holding in, you know, between my shoulder blades, like it can be really powerful. Yeah. And I'd also like to say, I think there's power in, re- in making a commitment for, you know, a certain amount of time to repeat the same type of practice every day. So, you know, some people like Bikram is kind of like that, where you do the same 26 postures, you know, however many times you go to the class, it's the same 26 in the same order, the same time commitment for, but again, you, you know, that allows you that space to really get familiar with your body. How does it move? What's different for me today? But you can do that too. If you wanted to do like a little bedtime yoga routine or a quick morning, if you, and, you know, people also do this in Kundalini where they dedicate you know, whether it's 40 days or 30 days or 90 days to a specific practice with a specific intention, but using the same movements every day to give your it, it because again, it allows the brain to sort of shift you you're focusing, but then at the same time, you become aware of so many other things throughout that, that process of that commitment and that introspection. Yeah. And for people in burnout, again, like the, like trying to commit to a 30 day thing can feel very overwhelming Mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. So usually what I recommend in the process of starting a burnout recovery is do it to the best of your ability and don't hate yourself. If you miss a day or if you get home and you're so tired that you just need to go to bed, like the burnout recovery process requires an awful lot of grace. And I make it a big point to not judge how people cope, what they choose for coping mechanisms, even if they don't like them, we can work around that as we start to bring your resources back online. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have the wherewithal, if you don't have the bandwidth to engage in something every single day, because it can be really difficult for people who feel overcommitted or who are perfectionists. I'm a perfectionist. And so if I was like going to do a 30 day 
yin yoga commitment. And I, I flake out on it on day six because like my knee is still not tolerating it well, or I just don't have the emotional space for it that day. I would be much harder on myself. Mm -hmm. So the intention is to get people into regular activities that they can do that are restorative for them, but for them to be able to do that in such a way that doesn't cause them more stress. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's, uh, you know, so many of us Westerners, whether you're in the U S or not is culturally ingrained in us to, you know, go hard 24 usable hours and every single day, if you didn't, you know, and I'm, I'm from the East coast too, even though I live in California now. So it's even like within the United States, it can be very different in terms of our expectations with ourselves, which is so culturally ingrained. And so I think that's, um, a huge healing aspect of burnout recovery also. And I'm so glad you brought that up is that we have to learn to forgive ourselves, to be gentle, to give ourselves permission to, you know, to let things go, to just say, you know what, I don't feel like it and that's okay. (laughs) Yeah. And kind of free yourself from that expectation hangover. Because like, that's often what happens for, for me in my burnout recovery. And I've worked with other clients is that, you know, you have this expectation and then you don't meet it. And then you feel worse than if you had never put that kind of bar up to reach in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, making sure that this is done in such a way that still supports you through the whole process is huge. Yes. All right. So juicy. I love all this stuff. Okay. I want to move on now though, to some of the, um, I found it really fascinating uh, on your website where you were talking about nutrient deficiencies. And so I, I don't think people think about it that way in terms of how a nutrient deficiency could actually be lending to your brain fog or your, you know, your gut issues, which is then contributing to your feelings and your experience of burnout. Absolutely. So this is a big one that I found for people, um, in my own personal burnout recovery at the beginning of that, I was, my vitamin D was 20 points lower than the lowest number on the scale that we use to recognize in functional medicine, your, your, what we consider to be appropriate vitamin D. And I should clarify that that lower number in functional medicine is, is 35. I Mm -hmm. think in biomedicine, it's usually 30. Mm -hmm. If your vitamin D is 35, that does not necessarily mean that you still have enough to function well. It just means that you are not clinically deficient. Right. And I say that in air quotes for, cause I just did that over zoom and I'm like, nobody can see that. <laughs> um, so I was extremely clinically deficient. Mine was like 14.1, I think at the beginning of mine. So one of the first things that I did was supplement with vitamin D3 and K2 because they, uh, they interact, um, with one another and they, they help absorption. I two weeks on that. And I could actually, I had the energy to cook dinner for myself again. Mm -hmm. I did not realize how bad my mood was and how bad my energy was until I started getting that back up into range. And once it was at that kind of like 35, I still didn't feel like I had enough. And Mm -hmm. so I continued doing that until it got up to more of like a mid range 50, 60, Mm -hmm. but it had a massive impact on my ability to function day to day. And so if you are in chronic stress and you do have some of those gastrointestinal changes, one of the things that we can see is intestinal permeability. Sometimes it's referred to as leaky gut. Mm -hmm. And basically what that means is the sort of doorways that allow things in and out of your gut aren't functioning appropriately. 
I liken them to bouncers. So if you go to a club, you have a bouncer. They let certain things in, they let certain things out. They're very particular. If the bouncer calls in sick and nobody covers the shift, the door is just swinging open back and forth and anything can go in and out, which means if you've got toxins in your system from an overgrowth of bacteria or from a Lyme or Bartonella or something like that, that can get into your system because your intestinal lining isn't secure. If you have nutrients that you're trying to get into your system, but you have leaky gut, those might just be going straight out and you may be passing those when you should be absorbing them. Mm-hmm. So you can get nutrient deficiencies from kind of a couple different places of not consuming enough of them or from having an underlying condition that prevents you from absorbing them. And so that's one of the primary things that I look at when I do burnout recovery, I start with a gut test and I start with a comprehensive blood panel because it lets me know what's going on in your gut, whether you don't have enough good bacteria, have too much bad bacteria, have small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which is bacteria in a part of your gastrointestinal system where it shouldn't be, or something like leaky gut. And then we also look at where are your nutrients? Like, are you getting enough vitamin D? Are you getting enough magnesium? You know, what are your inflammatory levels? We'll look at an iron panel, what's going on there. We'll look at your thyroid levels. And so it gives us an idea comprehensively of if you are getting enough and let's say you're already on a vitamin D supplement, we'll look at your vitamin D2 and your vitamin D3. D2 is the inactive form. So that sits in your system, but it's not the one that does the job that D3 does. D3 Mm -hmm. is the active form. If you have enough D2, but your D3 is low, there's a problem in that conversion process. So it may look good on paper that your vitamin D2 is okay, but if it's not functioning and converting into vitamin D3, you're functionally deficient. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of different places that that can show up. Absolutely. And how often or how frequently do you test based? Like, let's say, you know, you start with a patient on day one, you do their baseline. How often then when do you recheck to, to assess how they're doing? So usually with the blood work, what I like to do is check that after maybe two months, um, vitamin D in particular, I would like to check after four weeks if we can, um, just because vitamin D is a fat soluble vitamin. We don't want that to be too high either. Mm -hmm. So that one, especially I live in the Northeast and vitamin D deficiency is rampant, Mm -hmm. but you'll also see people who are like, oh yeah, I've been on 50,000 IUs of vitamin D for five years. It's like, oh, okay. Vitamin D toxicity is also a thing. Right. So certain types of vitamins, like certain B vitamins, you can get away with taking a lot of because whatever your system doesn't need, it's just going to flush Mm -hmm. without too much complication. Vitamin D, that's one of those things that you don't want to let it get too high because then you can start getting vitamin D toxicity symptoms. Right. So with those blood work, depending, I'll usually check um, one to two months after. With the gut testing, because if we're, if we're doing a gut clearing protocol, you want to clear out anything that doesn't need to be there. You want to tighten up those tight junctions. um, If you have leaky gut, but then you also have to rebuild the good bacteria that takes a little bit longer. So gut testing, I probably wouldn't do again as a follow-up for about six months, Mm -hmm. six months to a year, six months is the soonest that I would do it a year somewhere between six months and a year would probably be appropriate. Yeah. So, um, 
I'm glad you brought up the 50,000 units of vitamin D because I just want to, as the, the pharmacist in me wants to point out for anybody out there that's, that's taking that formulation, that is the D2 formulation. So if you're taking that, then your body still has to be able to, like you say, convert it into the D3, which is the active form. And the, and D3 is not just about, you know, um, preventing skin cancer or, you know, all of these things that we hear with the sunshine, it's important, but it, it does so many more things in our body, which is why you spoke about earlier, like you could feel a mental difference in yourself. And that is because of what D3 does for us in the body. So it's, it is important that if you've been on this 50,000 unit dose for a long time and you're still having symptoms, that could be a big red flag that your body's not converting. So with that being said, do you um, do any genetic testing or look at people's um, maybe like their MTHFR or some of the other SNPs that would maybe predispose them to not converting or, or even, you know, what we call being a poor methylator, so to speak. I don't necessarily do that right now. I do look at some methylation pathway uh, work if it's indicated, but I tend to not like to test too much. Mm -hmm. um, I would prefer to not overtest, especially because in functional medicine, we have so many options, you know, right. we've got blood tests, we have gut tests, we have cortisol and we have sex hormones. Um, what else have neurotransmitters, I done? Now. neurotransmitters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, mercury testing, yeah, mold. allergy testing. I mean, the, the number of labs that I'm credentialed with like still boggles my own mind. Yeah. And so I got to a point where I started doing this, where I was like, I, I need some structure and I want to start with the most obvious places. Mm -hmm. You know, if you hear hoof beats, think horses, not zebras. Right. Yeah. Once you've dealt with the horses and you're still hearing hoof beats, like, okay, maybe let's start looking for zebras. And so that's when I'll start looking for like in the Northeast, it's more common for me to consider running a Lyme panel on people, even if they've tested negative with like the, in, the single Lyme test that you get from a usual biomedical doctor. Mm -hmm. so there are, oh God, dozens of different species of the Borrelia bacteria that can have Lyme go along with that. And you have Lyme co-infections too. So you've got Borrelia, you've got Bartonella, you've got Babesia, you've got all of this stuff. Yeah. So locationally here, if I'm working with a patient in the Northeast, that might be something that I would look at. Um, genetic testing isn't in my wheelhouse yet. It's something I've considered adding in the future, but I have enough right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that if I feel like something like that is the case, I'll refer a patient out. If it looks like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe we're dealing with something more at a genetic level, that would be good information to have, yeah. you know, I can refer you to somebody who can do that for you. Yeah. And I think uh, just as a side note for all the, all of the patients out there and all those that are curious, the genetic testing is not something you absolutely have to have. It does open up the door for information, but again, and this is something that we often ask in both integrative and Western medicine, how will it change how we treat? If it won't change how we treat, then is it worth even testing? Because we're going to treat the same way regardless. And we'll be looking at for the, hopefully for the exact same outcome regardless. And so, um, that's also something too, as a patient, don't be afraid to ask if you're going to a practitioner and they're recommending this whole barrage of tests and, you know, open up those lines of communication with your practitioner. I really, really encourage it. 
Um, because maybe even just asking the question will, will like turn on a light for the practitioner and maybe they'll be like, you know what? Yeah, let's just start with a, B and C and then go from there. Because if just doing a, B and C is enough, and then you could, you know, your whole situation might be different in you know, one to three months. So. Absolutely. And that was something that I was just talking to someone about today. Um, completely random conversation that was like, I, I went to an office for something and the girl that I was talking to, uh, she said, you know, she was doing a medical intake and she said, has anything changed since the last time you were here? I said, yeah, actually I just got a a Lyme diagnosis. I ended up running my own testing. That's the benefit of being me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and she goes, oh, my dad has really bad Lyme. And I said, oh, really? And she said, what are you doing for it? And I explained, you know, what I do for it from a functional medicine perspective. And she said, how much does that cost? And I said, well, when was the last time your dad was tested? Was he, you know, is it confirmed that it's chronic Lyme? She says, yeah. I said, I, I don't have to test him if he knows that he has it. Right. Exactly. You know, yeah. if, if he wants to know exactly what his levels are now, when, if he comes to see me so that he can compare them when we retest eventually, I'm a nerd like that. I'll always go for that information. Mm-hmm. But if he knows and is comfortable and confident in his diagnosis, and he's gotten this from, you know, biomedical practitioners every how often, I'm okay going through a Lyme treatment for someone who has diagnosed Lyme. I'm not going to run, you right. know, a $750 test for them if that's not in his wheelhouse. Right. Yes. Yes. So be a fantastic patient advocate for yourself. (laughs) Yes. Always, Um, always, always. Yes. All right. So we're coming to the end of our time. Um, I feel like we barely scratched the surface, but I, we've had a fantastic conversation. So is there anything else that you feel, you know, a burning desire to bring forward before we move into our, um, shameless self-promotion phase? (laughs) (laughs) Um, the biggest thing that I would say is if, if you feel like you're burnt out or you're on your way to burnout, do not try and hack this alone. This is the other thing that people who are burnt out often try to do. It's like, I can do it. I can do it myself. I can get the meditation apps. I can do the thing. We are social creatures. We are meant to have a community. And if you don't have a community that understands burnout in your family group or your friend group, seek that out online. Mm-hmm. You can find resources on Instagram, it, hashtag end burnout culture, hashtag burnout recovery. That's a really good place to start. Um, I can give uh, Lara, I can give you the uh, link to um, a Facebook group for specific for burnout recovery mm-hmm. that my coach runs um, that's incredibly supportive. And if you don't know where to start, there are some books. There are some other resources that I can make sure Lara has so that you can start this journey. It doesn't mean that you have to go out and hire a coach right away. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of being able to inform yourself and get information where you can first, if that's what you feel like you need to do, and then do a stepwise process in terms of bringing on the right person for you at the right time. Maybe that's not a burnout coach right away. Maybe that's a therapist, a somatic therapist, Mm -hmm. something along those lines. Maybe you want to start with nutrition. So you go to a functional nutritionist who can do gut testing, but who can also do nutrition work with you specific to what you're going through. So there are different people in different pockets for burnout recovery, you know, acupuncture. I don't do acupuncture with most of my burnout clients because they're online, but I will recommend that wherever they are, they find an acupuncturist because that can help again, balance your nervous system and balance those stress hormones. So it's going to be a stepwise process. 
burnout recovery usually takes anywhere from six months to two years. I've seen at this point, depending on how far down the rabbit hole you are. And you're going to need a multitude of resources in order to get there. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that you're broken. It doesn't mean that you're worse off than anybody else. It means that burnout is complex and naughty and complicated, and you don't have to go through it alone. Yes, we are multidimensional beings. So it takes multidimensional approaches. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Tell everyone where they can find you and all the juicy things that you're offering to the world right now. So right now my burnout recovery program is one-on-one -on -one and it's a four month program. And we use a combination of functional medicine, coaching, hypnosis, and even tarot cards sometimes for people. If, um, if that's in the wheelhouse to help kind of clarify and direct sort of where they want to go, um, mentally, um, and you can find that at my website at www.theeastwestco.com. And I'm on Instagram and very rarely TikTok at the East West Co as well. Um, I have a couple of meditations on Insight Timer under uh, the teaching name Elizabeth Collins. So if you look that up, you can find me. I have a meditation for releasing anxiety from the body. And I have a minute meditation that um, we had talked about earlier is the mm -hmm. breathing meditation. Um, and I can include all of those links for you. Absolutely. Yes. So there will be a show, an in-depth, because I feel like there's so many resources that will really help people. And I'll put that up on my website, which is drlaramay.com. And, um, thank you again so much for being here. It was a great conversation. I'd love to have you back because again, I feel like we just barely scratched the surface and we didn't really talk about the whole energetic side of it. We <laughs> talked a lot about the mind and the body, but you know, me as a energy healer myself, I love to talk about that aspect. So I'd love to, um, later on have you back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We can definitely do a part two. That sounds great. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in today. Again, my name is Dr. Lara May, functional medicine specialist and energy healer. And, uh, this show airs every Monday, not, not every Monday, the, <laughs> the first and third Thursday of each month on news for the soul. And you can also find these episodes, um, syndicated everywhere you download podcasts. So tune in, ask Alexa to play or, <laughs> or Siri, whichever platform you're on. Um, they're, they're down, they know what's up. <laughs> and so, uh, thanks for joining us and we will see you in the next episode.